Listen, I want to be careful first to, uh, to point out that this text is clearly about two miracles. It's clear, it's, I'm not trying to pretend that it's not that, okay? It's clearly about two miracles, and it's not my intention then to overstate uh, my case or impose something in the text that is not there, okay? With that being said, uh, what is obvious is that there are miracles and there's healings and people are being saved. So not to downplay that or to say that that's not something that we should pay attention to. But sometimes unless you probe just beyond that surface superficial level of the text, you'll be left with just that. And we already know that God has been doing signs and wonders and people have been being healed and and cured through that. And uh, people have been being saved through that. And so... um, I want to just push us a little bit past that this morning and uh, help us recognize that Luke has intentionally stuck this narrative here out of chronological order for a specific purpose and recorded these two specific miracles amongst many others uh, that have just been, I'll say, passed over in some way by just being categorically said, well, there were many signs and wonders done at the hands of the apostles. And yet we zero in on these two particular ones. And so I want to go back to Uh, something that uh, I said last week, our focus from last week. And so the theme from last week was about maturity. It was about God's purposes in our lives for us being conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. And that is, that's the what of our salvation. That is is what God intends to do for us, through us, in our lives, to to conform us to the image of Christ. And so this morning, um, we're going to be working uh, Acts chapter 9, verses uh, 31 through 42. I think I lost my slides. I apologize. But uh, we're talking about family resemblance. And so the point from last week that I want to clue you in on is that God is not just including us. He's not just including us in his family, but he's making us so that we are his family. And uh, that may not seem like a very clear distinction at the moment, but um, it it will become more clear as uh, we talk about what it means to look like the family that we belong to. Now, I was told um, from a young age that I looked like my dad, which I didn't appreciate, right? My dad's old, right? He's as old as I was when I was his age, right? Or when I was that age being told I look like him. So uh, I, I grew up into looking like his, his physical features, but more and more I noticed that I, I am like my dad in a lot of ways. And a lot of the things that I unintentionally picked up along the way just by doing things with him, by being with him, what he taught me through absorption is what makes me who I am today. And so I appreciate the lessons that I was taught that weren't like, sit down, let me teach you a lesson. It was, come along, let's go and do this thing. And then suddenly, you know, I knew how to mow the yard or I knew how to, you know, uh, fix fix a pipe or something like that, right? And so those kinds of things that I, I learned from my, my father helped me to become uh, part of the family so that I, I look in a lot of ways like my dad. If somebody goes, they met me, they kind of have felt like they've met my dad before once they meet my dad or vice versa, right? And so a lot of you guys um, know what that's like. And some of you guys maybe haven't grown up with your paternal parents, but you still take on the qualities of the people that you're closest to so that the, the same mannerisms, the sort of things that you say will mirror like your spouse will say kind of the same kind of things that you do or have the same uh, responses to things. And so whether it's the attributes that we have, the mannerisms, our points of view, our likes and our dislikes, they tend to reflect the family that we are, we are and the family that we're with. And so this text has like three levels. The first very superficial level I already mentioned. It's about miracles. It's about healings. Yes, we get that. But beyond that, there's also this preparation of Peter 
that he's going to be doing this transition from the inclusion of just the Jews to now the Jews and the Gentiles into the mission of God. And so um, it's important that we, we see that is uh, sort of lurking in the background of this one. And then it's also, thirdly, a reflection of the growth and the maturity of church, of the church and the power of Christ to work in and through his people to bring about this family of God. So that's what I think these miracles are pointing to. Uh, I promise I won't put anything in there that's not there, but I think if you'll take it for what it is, uh, hopefully the Lord will help us see uh, what he wants to say, even if it's not what I thought he was going to say. So let's pray for our time in the word, and then we'll get to the text this morning. Um, Father, you're good. Uh, I pray this morning that you would honor your promise that your word does not return void. So as you plant the seed of your word into our hearts, May you prepare the soil there, that it would take root and bear fruit. God, uh, we ask that you would do this by your spirit to prepare our eyes to see your goodness and truth and beauty, prepare our ears to receive your voice speaking to us and our hearts, that it would receive what you would say in your goodness. We pray this in your name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Well, um... I'm just going to get straight to it here this morning. Uh, We're going to be starting in verse 31. So I wanted to back up just a second to the very end of last week to get to this verse uh, because it's the foundation from which the rest of this little section jumps off from. And so we kind of did it in passing. It was like the conclusion of last week, but really it's the foundation for this week. So we'll be going verse 31 through 42 this morning. Are you with me? That's close enough because I'm not going to stop. So here we go. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And they were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. Okay, so it's critical that we recognize that we have this purpose. It's, It's beyond just, hey, you're saved and now you're good. Like you don't have to worry about the sin problem. Uh, We are saved for a purpose that is to walk in God's ways. To be holy like God is holy. To be sanctified and to do the things that God wants us to do. So walk in the works and the will of God our Father. Okay? And so I put this verse up for you last week. And it should hopefully make sense in context this week. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are, that is the church, God's people, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. For what purpose? For good works. And they were prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So it gives you something to do beyond the fact that you got saved. Does it make sense? Okay. There's something for us to do beyond the fact that you were justified. Okay. So recognizing this particular point means that um, we're, we're growing into something. And the means by which that's accomplished is the exact same means that we are saved into. So here's what I mean by that. Um, by, by being put into the church, by being put into God's people, that is the same um, tool that God is using to bring about this purpose, okay? So uh, the, the word here uh, that we had in um, 31, it says, so the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, Samaria was being built up. And that, that word, the church, is the singular. There's not churches. There's only one church, one congregation, one people of God, regardless of where you are and what uh, ethnicity you happen to be from. It's the collective whole which is about to get a little more inclusive uh, in the next chapter, in chapter 10 of Acts, is when the the Gentiles come in. And so this is God's way um, to bring us all into one group from all of our disparate locations, to bring us all into one homogenous whole so that every tribe, tongue, and nation will come together and be God's people. But our way 
is more based on separated groups around affinity. You're just a little group over there. You kind of gather together, and that's one church over there. And then there's a church over here. And that's not the way that Scripture describes the church. The Holy Spirit communicates through the biblical authors using various metaphors. And they tell us two things, that the church is made up of distinct, different kinds of people into one collective, unified whole. So we're, we're different, but we're the same. We're, we're, we're separated, but we're all together, okay? And so it uses different kinds of metaphors to communicate this. It says we're all stones, or we're all parts of the body, or we're all priests, or we're all family members, or we're all sheep, right? But when it um, highlights those different elements, it all brings it back to the whole connected whole. So we're a house, or we're a body, or we're a family, or we're a priesthood, or we're a kingdom, or a people, or a temple, or a tapestry, or a bride, or a flock. Those are all singular things that make up all the different things coming together as one. Do you see that? So we're distinct and we're different in gifting, different in function, different in maturity, different in our places in life, different in our conscience, different in our preferences, in our experience, but that is never the emphasis in our differences. The emphasis always come back to the unified whole. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I picked a couple things. We're going to skip some verses just to get to the heart of it. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. So there's different things you could be, and there's different ways you could be gifted, but it's the same spirit and the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Jumping down to verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body is one and has many members. Does not, oh, sorry, for the body does not consist of one member, but many. And now verse 18, but as it is, God has, I'm going to slow down here so you don't miss it. But God has arranged for these things to be just precisely as they are. But God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. Okay? Not, if, if we were all single members, there would be, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Okay, so you see both, right? Distinct, different things, but all together one body. And then importantly, that God is the one that intentionally places these things where they are. So you need to hear this morning that you being plugged in to the church means that you have something to give, but you have something to receive. You have something to, to um, communicate to the whole, and you have something to get back from that. Most people ask the question, what does this particular church, this particular gathering offer me? That's what they ask. With, with all the choices of churches, different local gatherings you could go to, the first primary question I think most people ask, by and large, is how is this going to make me feel good? Is that, I, think that's, I think that's a fair assessment on how most people approach it. They want to know, how will this place cater to them, meet their particular flavor or their desires, or how their particular, quote-unquote, gifts can be used, instead of recognizing that it says that God has purposes in placing us exactly where he wants us. Because we have something to add, not just to take from the gathering. And so this, not meant to ruffle feathers, but it's just the truth, like, this part of the gathering of the church, you say, well, how do I, you know, I don't have the particular gift of, of singing or, you know, I'm not up there preaching. Um, singing is never mentioned as a spiritual gift. In fact, all the spiritual gifts take place mostly outside of the worship gathering. And so for you to 
quote-unquote plug into the church beyond attending this worship service is, has, has far-reaching implications beyond where you come to worship on Sunday morning. That's um, not the point of this morning, but it's an important point this morning, <laughs> okay? So it says that the one collective singular church is being built up in all these different locations. And it's such an interesting word. It says being built up. It's not three words. It's one word here. And it's, um, uh, okay, there we go. It's being built up, and it's uh, oiko, which is from the word oikos, which is house, or domeo. So it's a compound word, two words, mushed together. And oikos is family, or household, or property, or dwelling place. And, and maybe the old school people in here know that you would say your home is your domicile, right? That's where that comes. That's the Greek root of the word for house. And all it's saying here is that the collective church, the household, is growing, that's, a, that's, ex- that's exactly what the literal translation of this verse means. That through the Holy Spirit, they're being, they're being uh, raised together as a family, as a household, and it's growing. So listen, the church is, uh, is a family. It is the household of faith, okay? And so the household of faith is a theme that runs all throughout the New Testament. Ephesians, Timothy, Hebrews, Galatians, Colossians all mention the same phrase, the household of God or the household of faith. Because it's pointing to a particular idea that we are a family. And um, that's not something, you know, that you get to choose. Your family's not something you choose, per se. Now, you can choose to not see your family if you don't want to, or you don't enjoy them or whatever. But you don't get to choose whether or not you're in that family or not. And so uh, we are called and we are created and we're shaped as believers to belong and to grow together in the Lord as his family so that we grow up into unity, into fullness, so that the collective dwelling place of God and his spiritual presence is dwelling in us. So that's the picture that we have of of the unity of the church and what God is doing through us. Uh, So then it moves on. In verse 32, uh, we have uh, the beginning of this narrative about now from this fact that the Lord is blessing the, the church and then it's growing in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, Verse 32, it says, Now as Peter went, here and them, among them all, he came also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Um, so uh, he, he says here that the saints, which tells us that Peter is dealing here not with unbelievers, but believers. He's going back to either places where he knows churches have been planted or places where when everybody evacuated Jerusalem during persecution, where the gospel has already gone. And these people that follow the way are called saints, which means they've already received the gospel. They've already received the uh, new life. Uh, It's come from this word just meaning the holy ones. That's what saints refers to. So you are considered a holy, a holy one, sanctified. That's set apart for God's purposes um, once you have received the gospel. And so this is a, a reference not just to um, a title that you're given, but your condition. It's not just something you're called, but it's something that you are. You are holy because you've been set apart. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special treasure for the Lord's own possession. That's 1 Peter 2.5. You yourselves are living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So there are lots of signs and wonders that are being performed. And the question is now, why does Luke choose these particular two miracles and what are we meant to see in them Um, because they're nearly identical to two miracles that Jesus performed. 
And they're, they're, I say nearly identical because they vary only in the slightest ways. And so as we walk through um, these two miracles, I'll do my best to point out all of the similarities um, that are born between what Peter does in the next few moments and what Jesus did as he, um, as he taught Peter. And so uh, what does it mean that he taught Peter? Well, Peter was one of Christ's disciples. And the, and the word disciples literally just means a pupil or a learner or a follower, okay? Someone that's taking on the information from the master, whether that's being taught like verbally, explicitly, or by doing, or by observing, right? And so um, anyone that is a disciple, anyone that's a follower of God is, a, is uh, supposed to be a learner and a follower and an adherent, a spreader of a method or belief. That means that you don't just know how it goes, but you can also um, participate and, and practice the functions of being uh, a a disciple. And so, um, with that being said, let's move to uh, verse 33, where we get to the beginning of these miracles. It says, there he found a man named Aeneas. He was bedridden for eight years, and he was paralyzed. So, real quick, um, I want to point out the, the narrative uh, of what's happening here. I said, Luke tells this story sort of out of chronological order. And the reason why he does that, I think, is to point us to a couple of things that uh, I alluded to, which is the preparation of Peter for ministry to the Gentiles, but also to get us to look at what it looks like for maturity to be happening in the church. And so um, chapters 1 through 12 of Acts deal primarily with the ministry of Peter. And then uh, in, in, in chapter 10 and through 13, there's sort of this overlap. But then it really transitions to the ministry and the missionary journeys of Paul. And so that's really the real basic narrative layout, if you will, of, of Acts. But last week, uh, and through the conversion of Saul, what you, what's been happening is that we jumped forward in time about uh, eight years, and then Saul's really in Damascus, we're told, he's by his own words, that he's in Damascus for three years, and then he returns to Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem, he's sent out then to Tarsus, and, uh, and he stays there for what's called his silent years, for like another 10 years. So it's in between that happening and uh, Saul being converted and returning to Jerusalem, that we now return to this narrative of Peter going and visiting these different churches. So I'm telling you that Luke is intentionally rewound, and it's supposed to draw our attention to that. Now, I underlined in the last verse that Aeneas was bedridden for eight years. Okay? So, so keep that in mind, because it's, it's going to come into play. So it says, uh, Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise, make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Okay, so the similarities between this and Christ's miracle are this. The, 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 you'll be familiar with this one. There's a, a story of a, a man who's uh, been paralyzed, and remember his friends carry him, and they tear open the roof, and they lower him down on a mat in front of Jesus, and he's teaching. And um, what Jesus says in this moment is, um, your, uh, your sins are forgiven. And he's, he's, he shocks the Pharisees in that moment. They're, they're freaked out that he says this. And Jesus, perceiving that they are uh, upset about what it is that he's saying, Jesus says, which one is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, take up your mat and walk. But then he says, but so that you know that I have the authority on earth to forgive sin, I say to you, arise, take up your mat and walk. So not, as only, not only has he extended forgiveness of sin, he has also healed the man. So there's, there's the miracle that Luke is pulling from. 
in which Peter is now modeling, again, in this way, uh, that he's learned directly from Christ. So that's, that's uh, the narrative, at least, that you should kind of have in the back of your mind. So what, G- what um, Peter tells the man, and he is, Jesus Christ heals you. He's healed you. Rise, make your bed. So he, he gets up, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord, okay? So that's miracle number one. Now, uh, verse 36, moving on. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated, which, excuse me, which translated means Dorcas. That doesn't make me feel better. <laughs> I wish they hadn't translated, you know what I mean? Uh, so Dorcas means, uh, it means gazelle. But in sixth grade, it means dork. So, uh, okay, bad joke. All right. So she, her name translated means gazelle. She was full of good works and acts of charity. And in those days, she became ill and died. Take special note of that. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an open room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. And so Peter rose, and he went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping, showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, and he knelt down and he prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand, and he raised her up. And then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and, um, and many believed in the Lord. Okay, so the miracle that you should have in mind for this one that Jesus had performed is uh, the miracle of, of Christ raising Jairus' daughter. So uh, Jairus sends uh, some servants to the Lord. He says, hey, my daughter's very sick, and um, she passes away even while um, he's not there. And so he, he goes in to the room, and there's many doubters, and they're they're. They're uh, scorning him. He says, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. And so they're kind of laughing him out of the room at that moment. So Jesus sends them all out and um, he only keeps Peter, James, and John, the inner circle in the room. And he says the nearly identical phrase, except for in that case, the, the girl's name is not Tabitha, but Talitha. There's one letter different in that. He says, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, get up. Okay? So there's, a nearly identical miracle in which the little girl wakes up, right? And then she is cured. And so what we have here is Peter performing the exact same miracles, if you want to say it that way, as Jesus had. And so um, there's, there's a lot of things that we uh, are, need to pull out of this. And so uh, the first is this, that faith is both practiced and learned. It's not just about being uh, told new information, right? It's not just, it's not just being told how things uh, ought to go, but then actually employing those things and, and putting them into practice. Becoming like Jesus means that we should be becoming more like Jesus, okay? And that's the goal of our faith. The similarities of these two specific miracles help us see that Peter learned both. He observed what Jesus did, he absorbed what Jesus did, and then he practiced what Jesus did. Um, you can't observe something if, you, if you're not there. And so I think the primary thing here is first to know what it is uh, that it is that our, our faith means and what it is that God has promised so that we might enact those things. And so everything, though, is theory until it's actually put into practice. And so we mature in our faith not just by gathering new information, 
but by also by acting on that knowledge. Um, I've never seen it happen, but I'm told that like uh, a mother eagle doesn't give her baby flying lessons by telling them how to do it. She literally just pushes them out of the nest and then swoops down and grabs them right before they go splat. And then she flies them back up, puts them back in the nest, and then she poop, pops them out again, okay? That's, that's a, a good picture of what it means to grow in our faith, is to put, put faith into action until we, we are standing on faith instead of the, the, um, the strength and the ability of whoever taught us, whoever brought us up. So there's differences, though, in these healings that, uh, that I think are important. They're nuanced, but they're important. So there's many similarities, but the difference help us to see um, God's continued purposes for healing in his people. So there's several um, time references here. I, I, thought, I pointed out one that Aeneas had been sick for like eight years, and then it said um, Tabitha had gotten sick and then died. We're given um, specific time references which tell us that these believers either got sick since becoming believers or remained sick after being believers. That's, that's an important distinction because there are some people who, who preach a gospel that says being saved means being healthy, and that's not the same thing. That's, that's a false gospel. Um, these believers either remain sick after, after becoming believers or they got sick after becoming believers. And that's just, guess what? The natural course of life. That's the case of living in a broken, cursed, sinful world. And that's the condition that we're all going to get to at one point, either sick or death. And the second one's guaranteed. So this is just a natural progression. But the purpose of all miracles is um, never just the miracle in itself. If we, if we stop and terminate on the benefit to the individual, we've, we've missed the point. God's intention is never for us to see a physical healing as his ultimate purpose. So though this... Um, this woman is restored to life, and though um, Aeneas is given uh, his uh, ability to move and, and to work, again, um, those things are indicative of a greater idea. A saved person can become sick, and we all eventually die. God, in his mercy and his wisdom and his grace, can choose whether or not he, he will bestow a healing on somebody or not. And that's not for us to discern. God may heal a believer for his own good purposes, or he may heal an unbeliever for the purpose of um, drawing them to himself. But the signs and wonders are not an end in of themselves. If you missed it, there's two, there's two pictures of repentance at each of these miracles. Um, it's just stated in the long form. It doesn't say everybody in town repented. In fact, it just says many turned to the Lord, which is really just a long form way of saying they repented. Repentance simply means to turn means to turn. So you're turning away from sin to Christ. Many turned to the Lord. Many believed. And the word there, believed, is faith. So repent and believe. That's the gospel. <laughs> repent and believe. And it happens in both miracles. And the word there for believe is pistis, which is faith. Repent and put your faith in Christ. And repentance then is not just saying, I'm sorry. It has and entails with it turning to God and doing, doing so in faith. And so physical healing um, is different than salvation. This is a, a clear distinction I want to make. That physical healing is, is different than salvation. Now, you may already grasp that and know that, but I'm just going to pound it in, and then maybe you'll never forget it. Okay? So the lame man uh, that Jesus healed in the exact same way 
Uh, it's recorded in Matthew 5, but it's also in Luke uh, 5. That might be the wrong reference in Matthew, but forgive me. In Luke 5, uh, when Jesus performs this miracle, he asks, what's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? In, in that statement, he's separating the two out. He's saying, which one's easier, forgiveness of sin, salvation, or which one's easier, physical healing? And he performs both, he does both, but they're not one and the same. Otherwise, he would have just said, rise and walk, and that equals salvation. So Jesus himself separates these two uh, out. Um, another picture of it is in um, Luke chapter 17, where Jesus cleanses uh, 10 lepers. It says they're on their way, they're just walking down the street, and they happen upon these 10 lepers, and they cry out from across the street, Lord, make us whole, right? And so Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest. So they go on their way, and it says while they're on their way, they see that they're healed. And so it says, but only one returns back to Jesus and, and worships him. So Jesus said, wasn't there, wasn't there 10 of you guys? And he says, only one of you guys came back? And um, he says, your faith has made you well, okay? So there's a couple of things I'll just point out real quick. The first thing he said was, go show yourself to the priest. It says on their way, they're made, they're, they're healed. And the word there is just simply like a medical, a medical term, meaning they got better. So they were sick and they got well. But then when the one leper comes back and he worships Jesus, what Jesus says is, your faith has made you, and the word there is, is translated well, which is unfortunate, but it's literally the word saved. <laughs> Sozo, which is part of uh, the Greek root soter, which means savior, okay? So he says, your, your faith has healed you in that sense. You, your, your faith has saved you. So only one of those. So again, you see the difference between being made medically whole and the difference between being uh, made spiritually whole or saved. And so um, don't, don't uh, marry the two because they're importantly separated. So uh, these particular miracles, I'll go out on a limb, but I'll say I think I have good grounds for it, are performed on two already believers, okay? Both of these healings are performed on people that already are saved. I say that because we're told that Peter goes in among the saints, so he's traveling among the saints and he finds Aeneas and he, and he saves and he, or, and, and he heals him. And we're told that for eight years he had been in this condition, which if you remember the timeline, would predate where Peter's um, heading this way long after the gospel would have gone out. Then we're also told when he goes to um, Joppa and he finds uh, Tabitha that there's many widows and saints who are mourning her. She belongs to the body of Christ. Okay, so these, these two miracles are performed on, on believers. So I want you to look at something. When Peter is, after this first miracle, um, he's, I don't know, it doesn't say what he's doing, but he's just kind of hanging out. And then we're, we're told that um, this woman uh, is sick and died, and they put her, they, they wash her and they put her in the upper room, which is uh, sort of out of the ordinary, right? If, if, you were, if you died, it was washed, anointed, and buried, same day, right away. There's no reason for you to hang around, okay? It was a quick deal. And so um, the fact that they put her in the upper room is, is sort of evidence of some kind of faith that something different was gonna happen in this case. Now, um, and it says, they send two people to go to Peter and they say, without delay, come with us. Without delay. The, the word there is just like, literally don't let anything stand in your way, okay? And so I, I think this is an important thing also for us to look at. Don't let anything stand in your way. And uh, we live 
sort of in a day of selfishness. Everything that we think about or we, we look forward to or we assess is evaluation of how can I get mine? How do, how do I get what I think I'm owed? Our mentality says, if we get anything, it's because we, we, we need to take it. If there's a pizza with eight slices and there's nine people in the room, you better take yours first, right? Because you need to get yours. And um, what Christ tells us is that we're meant to be servants. And Jesus' example to the disciples and then his command to the disciple was serve one another as I've served you. And so what we see in this moment is when they tell Peter to come without delay, he's got no good reason to go with them. In fact, he's got a lot of good reasons not to go with them because they're taking him to a town where he ought not want to be and yet he goes with them anyway. And so our ability to, um, um, to, to lay down our preferences, lay down our wants, lay down our selfish desires is part and parcel of what it means to, to follow Jesus and to reflect him as, as we grow up into maturity. Galatians 6.10 says, as we have opportunity, let's, let us do good to everyone. Do good to anybody as you've been given the opportunity. These two people show up and they say, we need your help. Without delay, come with us. Come with us to the next town. And so he goes with them. But he says, especially in Galatians 6.10, not just do good to everyone, but especially those who are of the household of faith. The more you serve, the more you give, the more you will receive. Now, that's not like a... Um, that's not the health and wealth gospel. It, what I said was the means of your growing up into Christ is by, by being plugged into the church more and by becoming more a part of the family. And so the more that you engage, the more you give, the more you will receive from what it is that Christ means for you to mature. And so there's two distinctions here. The disciples as uh, learners and, um, and, uh, and then also walking in what it is that we've learned. And so we're supposed to walk both in God's will and in God's ways. And we're supposed to do the works that God has for us. That is to walk holy and to be holy and to do good and to be good. If you noticed, there's a lot of things that are up in this passage. Get up, go up, arise, wake up, straighten up. He goes up into the upper room. She's in the upper room. There's a lot of up, up, up. Everything's up in this passage. The command to get up is impossible without Christ. The command to do anything in, in, in engaging with being up is impossible without the Holy Spirit. In fact, it would just be cruel. And so that's not the gospel. The gospel is not get up. The gospel is not clean up. The gospel is not wake up. It's you're dead and you've been brought to life. That's the gospel, okay? But the implications of the gospel are, are just beyond this phrase. So what he says, interestingly, here to the paralyzed man is not just get up, but he tells him to, uh, he says, make your bed, which is an interesting phrase. It's like only used here, the whole, whole Bible. One time, it's right here, and it means something like straighten out your life. Straighten out, make your, make your room up, basically, is what he tells him. So he's, he's, if you want to get the picture here, he's like, you're enabled now to do what you ought to do. It makes sense then. It follows then, if you're capable, that you should make your bed. Does that make sense? It's an implication of the gospel that once you've been given new life, that you should walk in that life. Yes? So that's what um, I think we're meant to see here. The gospel is not about you getting up, straightening up, cleaning up, waking up. But the implications of the gospel are 
that you should be getting up, straightening up, waking up, and cleaning up. Ephesians 5.8 says, You were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, so walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. It is precisely because you have been given new life in the Spirit that you're enabled now to be built up and to walk and to um, live out the life that is inside of you. Philippians 1.11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise of God. It tells us um, that Tabitha was full of good works. There's many widows that are around, and they're mourning her. They're showing Peter the tunics that she had made. We, we see this picture of a woman who was engaged and, and just uh, doing whatever, whatever opportunity that she had, doing good to the household of faith. That's effectively the picture we have uh, of Tabitha. Those who mourned her had benefited from her, but she also from them. In Titus 3, 14, we're told that our people, that's the church, our people must learn to devote themselves to good works in order to meet the pressing needs of others so that they will not be unfruitful. People must learn to devote themselves to good works in order to meet the pressing needs of others so that they will not be unfruitful. All right. So this is where I'm, I'm going to try and um, push all this together. We, we have two, um, two pictures drawn by Luke for us through the miracles of Peter that are nearly identical to things that Jesus did. So we see just clearly real right off the top, that Peter's clearly learned as a disciple from Jesus, right? And now he's putting those things into action and faith, just like we should. Whenever we learn from the word of God, whenever it speaks to us, whenever the Holy Spirit prompts us, we should walk in those things. That's the, the, the superficial level, but then just below that, there's something about maturity here. There's something pushing us forward into realizing what it is to engage with um, the life that we've been given in Christ, in the church. You guys know this verse. You have not because you, you ask not. We like that one. We think, I just got to remember to ask. But there's an extension on uh, the end of that verse. You have not because you ask not. But then he says, and when you do ask, you ask for selfish reasons. And you ask because you, you want to spend it on yourself. Let me ask you this. If you got everything you prayed for, if, if God honored your every request because you remembered to ask, and he healed every ailment that you had, every condition that you didn't want, he fixed every situation that was uncomfortable, he laid low every mountain that was in your way, would a single soul be added to the kingdom or would a single good work be added to the church? And you may say, well, if he did those things, then I could. You ask because you do it with, with selfish motives to spend it on yourself. You, 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 you want to be healed because it's uncomfortable and because God knows it's uncomfortable to not be healthy. Now, this isn't the reason why God heals or doesn't heal, but I think you should embrace the idea <laughs> that if, why would it take a miracle for you to do the thing that you already can do? 
You see what I mean? If God should honor you with an extra one, five, or ten years of life for you to live for him, shouldn't that be adding new souls to the church? And shouldn't that be adding new good works to life? And you're saying, well, if he would do that, then I would do that. And I'm saying, you're already here. You've already been given the means. So why does it take the miracle to walk in that thing? We seek because we want to spend on ourselves. It's not that God won't fix those things. It's not that he's unwilling to heal. It's not that he's mean and he won't fix your situation. It's perhaps that he wants you to see that you're only living for you and that you have a greater purpose if you'll embrace that. You do not need a miracle to do what he's already miracled you to do. (laughs) The greatest miracle has already been done if you're saved. The greatest miracle is salvation. The greatest thing that he can do is heal you of sin and put you into the kingdom. And then he infuses you with the very life that resurrected Christ from the grave and says, go and live for me. And you say, well, I need a miracle to do that. Bro, you already got the miracle. Okay? You're, you're already there. So, so walk in it. So I, I, I hope I haven't overimposed my ideas on this text, but I think that's an important word for us this morning. That, that Peter is showing us what it means to mature in the faith, but he also receives something from this. He, he gets to experience what it is to walk out in the faith. He, he, I won't say resurrects. This is a proper resuscitation. There's no resurrection until the end, okay? But he resuscitates this woman. That's, a, that's an experience for Peter, right? That's a faith-growing experience for Peter. He receives, but he gives. You two are not less capacitive of the same thing just because you're not an apostle. You have something to give, you have something to receive. So walk in the life and faith that God's given us. Father, I pray this morning that um, 